This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Everything You Didn't Want to Know About Sex, But Somebody's Got to Tell You. And the author is Stuart Lehman, and Stuart joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Stuart. How do you do there, Steve? Well, I guess nice the, to be here. Well, I guess the title introduces the book, and you put these three words on it, uninhibited, unbridled, and brutally sensible. So, <laughs> you can add honesty to that. Too. And honesty. All right. Well, tell us why you wrote the book, Stuart. Well, a friend of mine was uh, doing, doing the dating, the web dating uh, uh, sites, uh, looking for uh, a date, and found this whole world out there of different styles of dating sites and uh, told me about the, the expanse of the size of it and it was so huge and how people wanted to talk. So I was in a process of writing a book and it was starting to get stale, the subject matter I was dealing with. So I turned my attention to it. I said, well, let's do a little bit of this together and uh, see if we can come up with something interesting and I'll change my uh, my book and do something on this in this venue. So you did a lot of research over the last couple of years. You'd be surprised how much time we spent there talking to people and uh, using other sources. But uh, we did. We we've got we we became members of several sites, and then there were several other sites that just offered themselves up. So we've got uh, almost a year and a half of uh, compiling data and what. I actually got in the book for what I thought were of the most interesting, also common. There's nothing in the book that isn't duplicated somewhere, someplace else. Uh, it's amazing. It was amazing to us uh, when they got into the uh, fetishes end of it of how many people were thinking along the same terms. And we wanted to present it in a way that would be non-vulgar and acceptable to a, to a general readership, adult readership. You say that people today have found a way to ask for sex without embarrassment. And this is, I guess, the Internet, because they can talk back and forth in chat rooms or they can email each other. Well, that's really, it's amazing how uh, the expressions that come out there. And there are things that, you know, years ago, you weren't even thinking about doing. You, you couldn't possibly do that. We've, we've all been nurtured, either religiously or paternally, uh, as this is a taboo subject, and I, I think... Even partners, you know, husband and wives, if things start to go a little sour after many years, are afraid to bring this subject matter up. Why, what might make things a little better? And the book touches on, tries to explain, look, speak your mind. You might be surprised as to how uh, receptive your partner would be. Accepting. And you found that women are just as vocal as anyone else. If I had to say which one was more vocal... You might be surprised, but they're definitely equal. Yeah, they, uh, they, they've come a long ways over the years uh, from when I was a child. Um, it's, 
it is mostly because you know being being a man, uh, my subject matter on the uh, non-gay sites was with only women anyhow. So that's who I talked to. Now we did we did uh, access a couple gay sites, portrayed ourselves to be gay, and of course then we got all the uh, responses from male. I, I was not able to penetrate a lesbian site. And this really points out that these sites really deal with just a pure appetite for lust. Is that right? Well, not all of them. I mean, I do. The, the book does offer some advice on uh, how to use some of the much milder uh, dating sites. You know, they, they all do a pretty good job too. I, I've got to say, they pretty much come through with what they offer. But yes, the ones that are deeper into the into, into bizarre sexual practices are able to get their message out there and are able to get respondents. And you come up with some amazing things that I never know. One particular thing is, uh, you know, dominatrix, a lot of the motivation for them is to get favors. When I say favors, they get their laundry done. They get their washing done. They get. It's amazing what they reveal as to why they're in it. Uh, so I think you will find it an interesting read. Um, it does point out specifics in certain areas that are very common, and it's just surprising that uh, the spanking episodes you hear about that is so often mentioned that it's it's flabbergasting to to know that it's 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 just something that people think about. Now, are we dealing with people who are just, uh, what would we, how would we call them? Uh, well, I'll tell you what, most of these people got money. That's the first thing. I say that because you can't join these sites without having to pay a membership fee. And so what you end up with mostly, and I've actually been redundant in the book, as I mentioned how many people are college educated and so on, but those are the people that have the disposable money for such things. So we're not dealing with deviant sex people. We're dealing with we're dealing with the normal the normal people out there that are just once they're given the opportunity to to speak their mind or print their mind, whichever you want to call it, they do, and, and they, I think they do it in a hopeful manner to get a response. You mentioned here that you said this writing brings into question the expense and the other resources taxing the public for very little good. I, I think that was in, a, in, a, in an area where we were talking about controlling sexual activity. Do you think that should be controlled? Well, I think that it is in other places, and I don't think that they have as much of an issue. I don't want to endorse We're talking, obviously, here about solicitation and so on. I, don't, I, I do feel that it should probably be decriminalized, uh, as it is in most other places. Now, I know that's going to upset a lot of people, but if they're, if they're consenting adults, we do we do spend an awful lot of police courts jail uh, money uh, on a crime that when it's not a crime um, it's a waste in my estimation. Um, I think there's need for such a service, and more than half the uh, uh, modern countries do not have the same kind of uh, uh, taboos and, and the same kind of corrective uh, measures. I just think it is a waste. We've watched cops 
uh, you see how much effort goes in. Now, they handle it differently out in the Midwest, we'll say, than they do on the East Coast. But it's just an opinion that there are plenty, if they're consenting adults, and that's a big thing, um, I don't understand the uh, necessity to try to um, uh, police it. Seems like there's so many much, so much more other important uh, crimes to be dealing with. You also say the idea that this is wrongful behavior and shame is felt by mere disclosure of these sexual feelings are healthy and possibly even a stress reliever. Well, I do think that uh, if you're in a relationship and it's for what, whatever reason, usually it's time and things aren't going that good in the bedroom, that partners will not open up to each other. And we've noted with the respondents here that they'll use this medium to, to get their message out. And when they do get their, their message out, it sometimes rectifies a problem that they wouldn't otherwise be able to uh, communicate. So, yes, I think it's stressful if, if a married couple is having uh, a bad time of it. Uh, it would be better to bring about what may turn that situation around, but are afraid to bring it up to the partner. There is a message here, and uh, if you read the book, you find examples of that. I do think it could be um, something that would help solve some problems if people would just talk about it. They might be very surprised as to the uh, reaction. And do you find a lot of women that are participating on these websites uh, really have companion? Companionship on their minds, foremost. Well, I'm not talking about the, the, the sexually explicit sites. I'm talking about the regular dating sites. That seems to be a bit of a. That, that's the main complaint. The women on the uh, the more heavily advertised sites, they are actually looking for a new partner. They're, they're looking for security. They're looking for a companion. But while they're doing that, men on those same sites are going through the pictures, seeing what they like with greater expectations. Now, that's certainly not true in every case, but that is the most often heard complaint we found in talking to the women. It's, um, remember, very aggressive, and when they didn't uh, comply according to those wishes, they were gone. The men were gone. Tell us about this term or this description called dominance. What's a dom? Well, a dom is uh, when when you have a sexual situation where there's um, class and M or B and D, and it's been known uh, domination, and and you can play either the role of the slave master or the slave, and it's it, it's sexually arousing uh, to be in that sort of a situation, depending on. What you like better? Do you want to be the dominant person or do you want to be the person doing all the service and the servitude? We have found uh, an amazing uh, uh, disproportionate number that most people would rather be servicing than, than doing or, or, or receiving the punishment end of it, if you want to call that, for pleasure, than doling it out. It's uh, a weird human behavior, but... Uh, uh, the, uh, the numbers were uh, tremendously in favor of wanting to be uh, the sub, subordinate. 
there is there's enough dominance out there. But the subordinates outnumber them by probably seven out of ten. How quickly do these people want telephone conversations or even to meet? How do how how do they go through this process of deciding who is going to be their next partner? If you make a connection on one of the websites, the first thing you've got to try to do is figure out a way to, to communicate not necessarily on that website. And the websites are very clever that way. You can't just bang out an email address. They actually code them, and you can't get it. But, but there are ways. Uh, you get your telephone numbers out there. And uh, if you're successful and you get a conversation, uh, it's pretty it's it's pretty quickly figured out whether you're talking to somebody of of a mutual interest or not. Um, and quite a bit you get you don't. I mean you you think that you found someone that has a mutual interest, and when you get to talk to the person, you find that it's a little bit different. But when you do, they 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 do click and they and they do travel miles and they put their they put expenses into it and they actually make connections. Is there a percentage of the people that are just fooling around? They really, you know, just trying to, just for the shock value, just to be involved, but they're really not interested at all? They're just playing games? Well, I think you've always got a percentage of people that are doing that, and uh, uh, I hope they didn't list us. I mean, we're actually doing a research here because when we were on the site for comparison, we say it's a non-technical research. We just had these things in front of us, and we noted that um, there's an awful lot of similarity, an awful lot of people uh, on these sites, and um, were successful in obtaining partners, most of them. But there's also those numbers that are not successful, and uh, but if you stay with it, you are eventually going to find someone, I would guess, and uh, that is the purpose of joining these sites. You say these were some of the most colorful and uninhibited people you've ever spoken with. Well, it is. I mean, I could never, yes, face-to-face, I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone like that. <laughs> but uh, on chat, as I say, if you're, they're, they're willing, some of these are very explicit. And if you're willing to put that information, uh, the Internet is very public. Uh, you may pay a fee, but it's anybody in the public can, can join, and they do put, you know, their their identities are protected, as we did. We protected. There's no, there's no nobody mentioned, no service, no nothing whatsoever in the entire book that can link anyone to any of these characters. So everyone has a code name. And... Yeah, yeah, right. They do. They all have usernames, and they have, uh, and, and that's and that's when you communicate. That's how. That's what you use. You've had some comments from some readers. Uh, I'll quote a few here. Nothing like this ever before. A good read. A book easily mistaken for what it isn't. Well, it's not a dirty book, I don't think. I, my, my point of view, it's not a dirty book. That's that's where I think that's a good comment. Uh, if you read the book, it has sexually explicit. It does set up some of those bizarre sexual acts, but it's not vulgar, and it's very much human, and... Right. If you pick the book up and you're looking for explicit sexual activity like you would find in an X-rated movie or something, not there. Well, if you you thumb through the book, it's not there. You've got to keep reading or you miss the brilliance. 
You've been that called might be brilliant. an overstatement. <laughs> <laughs> that might be an overstatement. But there are people that pick up the message there. If I had to rewrite it, there would be there would be different things I would do. And there are key lines from some of these people that I think indicate uh, some of the messages that that the book is trying to say. For instance, I think I mentioned there, which I know not everybody would agree, but to be gay, I mentioned, is less genetic, more of a choice. I know that's going to excite people. I don't really mean that literally, but I do mean that I think gay, for most a lot of people, anyhow, is all about the sex. And if you take that sex out, you wouldn't be gay. And to me, it's what provides the greatest excitement, arousal and excitement, that is what you want to be, and you can pick that by being involved in role-playing, by being gay, by being, even though in some situations they're gay because they are naturally gay. But I do think that people tend to go toward what gives them the best best thrill, and these sites reveal that. Stuart, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on Amazon.com, and I have a website, and it's the last part of the title. It's Somebody's got to tell you .com, and if you go to that, in the address bar, somebody's got to tell you .com, you will, you will get uh, somewhat of an idea of the kind of book. It's 100 pages. It's read in an hour and a half, and so far I have not received, uh, almost everyone that's read it has found it interesting. Maybe not something that they would recommend to somebody else, but those of that interest, they said that well, they had to keep reading anyhow. Well, Stuart, thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you for letting me be on. I, I hope I do sell a few books, um, and I hope that I didn't offend anybody. I apologize in advance. Anybody's listening, there was no intention there to step on anybody and dissuade your feelings. Thank you for the opportunity. That was Stuart Lehman. He is the author of his book, Everything You Didn't Want to Know About Sex, But Somebody's Got to Tell You. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, 
history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Legend of Round Valley, A Romantic Adventure, and the author is Carol Tillotson, and her husband Don joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Don. Hi. Well, good to have you with us. Your wife passed away this past July. Yeah, uh, you know, it was uh, cancer that she had, and she had it for about a year, and uh, July 21st, she passed away. She got her first copy of her book about three weeks before that. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm glad she saw it. And asked me to do everything I could to promote her book for her, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, Don, tell us in general, before we get into some details about characters and about the plot, tell us in general what the book is about. Now, it's the legend of Round Valley. Well, what happened is uh, the Round Valley is right next to a huge, uh, national forest, um, and it's very primitive. And years ago, we took a backpacking trip on horseback into that wilderness area. That's Northern California. That's correct. And we did that for 10 days. And we saw some of the most beautiful country you've ever seen in your life. Well, it's got a great name. It's Yola Boli. Is that it? Yola Boli. Yola Boli Wilderness. Wilderness It sounds, therefore, is that because of an Indian kind of derivation there? Yola Boli? There is an Indian reservation there. And uh, it was a wonderful trip. And so when she decided to start writing, I said, my gosh, you've got all this beautiful background and all the research we've done 10 days in there you should be able to really do a fine job uh, using this as a background so that's what she did so this is the story of an indian legend but tied to modern day that's correct all right so what did she have a fascination with indians too was that something that she enjoyed uh, doing research on or always had a fascination with Indians because she is part Comanche. Uh, Her ancestry from Texas uh, has always left her interested in the Indian uh, culture, and so she wanted to put that into her book. Well, the story starts out very uh, dramatically with, I guess he's one of the leaders of the tribe, but he knows that two braves have gone to check out some tracks that they have found uh, some unfamiliar tracks, right? Well, uh, the book kind of jumps from the past to the future, and uh, yes, that's correct. You start uh, out the, whenever that w- took place, obviously, this, probably, what, the 1800s somewhere? That's correct. This is probably their first encounter with a white man. 
and they don't really even know how to describe the white man or the wagons in which they're in. They're, exactly. they're having a hard time describing them. Exactly. It, 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 it starts out with a bang and, and never stops. There's no filler in the book. It keeps you riveted every minute and always something new and exciting. And there's several twists in there, <clears throat> in there that'll really throw you. Tell us who the main character is. Oh, it'd probably be Jacob, the Indian, the, the an Indian, and then well, he's got uh, Indian bloodlines, right? Yeah, no, he's a purebred. Oh, is Indian. he purebred? Okay. Oh, you betcha. All right, and and it's also down. And then Shannon, she's the the main woman in the thing. It, it's about three couples that decide to take a vacation into the Yoli Boli. Uh, kind of like you did, huh? Right, exactly <laughs> like we did. And so, uh, but they didn't realize how dangerous it's going to be. There's a, nowadays in California, uh, the number one cash crop in California is marijuana. And uh, so there were mar- marijuana growers in Yolo Boli at the time of this uh, novel. And so it became a very dangerous trip and a very exciting trip. And uh, when it was all over, it, was, it really came out. So these three couples must stumble upon some illegal activity. Exactly. And, of course, nobody likes to be discovered, right? <laughs> no, especially those type of people. <laughs> right. So you can see there's danger right there and intrigue and drama right oh, there. Oh, boy. And there's so, also some uh, a little bit of magic. The Indian... Uh, um, medicine man has certain powers that help uh, during the uh, during the book, and uh, it's very exciting. Now, is that Jacob's grandfather? Yes, Lone Elk. Lone Elk. Lone Elk. Well, now Lone Elk must be quite old. He is. So he has he remembers the early days too. Exactly. So now we have the white man in this wilderness. Uh, Obviously, uh, involved in criminal activity and... Well, what you have is you've got the Indians on one side, you've got the drug growers on the other side, and you have these three couples in the middle. And they wind up getting run over from both directions almost. And uh, I'll tell you, it's uh, very exciting. And uh, I think everybody will just love the book. So are the Indians in on any of this marijuana growing? Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. They're very upset that these guys are in their woods because that's their, they, they consider that country theirs. And uh, when people move in and start doing that sort of thing, um, if an Indian stumbles across their growing situation, well, they'll, they'll shoot him. So, yeah, there's no love lost between the two. So is the story about these three couples trying to get out of this situation or trying to uh, uh, play uh, citizen policemen, or what are they doing? Well, it started out, they're just on a vacation. But unfortunately, uh, the people who they hired to backpack them into the wilderness area were the drug growers. And that drug growers use these backpacking trips as a method of bringing their marijuana out 
without being suspected because here's this uh, tourist uh, uh, horse trip. So nobody looked at them. And so one of them accidentally stumbled onto some of their stuff, and, and then it went on from there. So they realized that perhaps their lives were in jeopardy then. Oh, boy. Because I'm sure this is a big-time operation. Oh, big. And and the thing is, I don't want to give it all away, but sure. there's some pretty important people that were involved in that drug growing. And so uh, ah. I, I'll tell you, that it's it's so exciting. You know, it just it's just so very some exciting. well-known people maybe in that that live in the area that are that have this uh, upstanding <laughs> reputation aren't so upstanding. Exactly. Ah, <laughs> so, it sounds good. It sounds good. Now, now these three couples. Uh, who is uh, the dominant person in amongst these three couples? Who's the leader there? Well, it would have to be Eric and Shannon. Okay. They're the main. You know, is that is that part. his wife, Shannon? No, they're not married. They're, but uh, Eric is the most dominant uh, male, and Shannon is the most dominant female. But they all play very important parts. Is that the romance? That romance. I mean, uh, is that the romance here with Eric and Shannon? Right. Okay. Romance with Eric and Shannon, intrigue between them. It's really something. In filling out some information about the book, you said there are so many exciting twists and turns that it would be hard to pick just one to talk about. And once the reader finds themselves immersed within the story, it will feel like they're riding a roller coaster. Well, you know, that's one thing I don't want to give away is those twists and turns. Because when you come upon them, you're shocked. You say, oh my God, I didn't know that, or... Oh, my gosh, I, I can't believe this, uh, because the way the book is set up, it leads up to these things. And uh, I, I would want people to discover those twists and turns on their own. That's what makes it so exciting. Now, these upstanding so-called uh, citizens that are involved in this illegal uh, marijuana activity, do they know about these couples as well? Oh, yes. Oh, here we go. There you go. Yeah, And, and these couples probably know who they are. Uh, no, they didn't oh, they, at they, the time. At the time. They knew a few of them, but... Uh, but they know that they've stumbled on something pretty oh, big, that yeah, this is yeah. much more than just some uh, backwoods people growing some marijuana for their own use. This has got much more, like, like you just mentioned, this has got ties to uh, the... I guess the kind of like the mafia. Well, it's not the mafia, but it's a, a white collar, white collar mafia, a prominent citizen, <laughs> prominent uh, family. Yeah. yeah, they soon discovered that they were in trouble and uh, in extreme danger, and uh, and it gets pretty hairy from that point on. So there must be some help from the Indians. Yes. Yes. The Indians get involved to help these three couples to get them out of there. Do they ever? Yes. So it's just like the wild, wild west almost. Yes. <laughs> so like going back in time. Huh? Oh, yeah. Now, Don, you said that they used the, they used the general public who were on these backpacking trips to bring the marijuana out, unbeknownst to these couples that were thinking that they were just out to have some fun. Now, tell us more in detail 
about all that happened. There's, there seems to be, uh, you know, I don't know. How in the world did they do that? I kind of used the wrong word, backpacking trip. It was actually a horsebacking trip. The, the, everybody had horses, and then they had pack mules carrying the food and supplies for the 10-day. It's usually a 10-day excursion. Well, what the drug dealers would do is they would take these people in, give them a good time, take the mules to their uh, where they're growing their marijuana, load up the mules with the marijuana, and then when they brought the people out in 10 days, they the mules were, were loaded with marijuana. And so the law would never suspect that. Here's these uh, tourists and, and tour guides. Then when they got to a staging area, the uh, prominent figure in the book would come up and pick the stuff up and take it to market, and so it was. And nobody person. would suspect that person at no. all because everybody knew him. Oh, when you find out who it was, you'll be shocked. Yeah, everybody knew this person and oh, figured, yeah. you know, he was just on some, you know, just Mr. kind of on Top some citizen. Yeah, just on some kind of official business. Exactly. And so they had a real sweet deal going, but then when they were discovered by one of these couples. They were in a quandary. They had no choice, but they figured they were going to have to kill them all. That's exactly right. Yeah, right. and so, so that, boy, it got it started to get real hairy. So it becomes sounds like a chase or flee for your life kind of situation. Exactly. And where the Indians come in to help them, it sounds like. Well, boy, you really like that part of the book. Uh, I'll tell you, that's a very exciting part of the book. As the book, the way the book is written, it continues to grow. Some books get flat in the middle, some get flat at the end. This book just gets stronger and stronger until it reaches the end. And even right at the very end, it is extremely exciting and strong. And uh, my wife was considered a very powerful writer by critics read the book and so in fact they said there wasn't any filler as they called it in the book none so Every it's just kind of, of it. non-stop it's it's drama and intrigue and and just a entertaining great story exactly when you start the book uh it'll get extremely exciting now the sacramento bee in uh sacramento california did an article on her book and we sent the book to the lady, and the lady says, oh, I don't have time to do this. Uh, I'm sorry. She called us back about three days later, and she says, oh, my God, I made a mistake in cracking the book, and I read the first page. <laughs> and I go, oh, my God, i got to read the second page. And she said, I read that book. Oh, I didn't go to bed that night. I read the book all through the night into the next day, finished the book, and she says it was one of the best books I ever read, and I'm going to do a two-page article on your wife and your book. And Fantastic. that's what she did. Well, great. Sounds like a movie to me. Oh, it's, it's <laughs> you know, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm my wife's husband, and of course I'm going to say, oh, this book is wonderful. Well, doesn't every husband say that about her wife's book? They but better. The critics <laughs> yeah. that don't have an interest in the that's book right. say that. Right. Then you know you got yourself a real book. Well, Don, tell us how to get your book. 
Well, I guess it's on iUniverse, it's uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You have to order it through them. And uh, I think retail is $22 for the paperback, but you know how these guys, they discount the books and stuff, so I'm not sure what you wind up paying for the book. Well, it that- also has a hard copy you can get. Well, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio and sharing your wife's story. I'm sure she's proud, very proud, of the way you talked about her book, and I'm just so uh, thankful that she was able to see it before she passed away. Well, I just I feel so bad about her being gone and <clears throat> not watching the development of her book. She asked me just before she died, please promote my book, and... Uh, If I can do that, uh, I'll be happy. Well, thanks again, Don, for being on this segment of iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, too. That was Don Tillotson. He is the husband of Carol Tillotson. She is the author of The Legend of Round Valley, A Romantic Adventure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on Tugginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives?, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives? is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives? is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Brooklyn Beginnings, A Geriatrician's Odyssey, and the author is Dr. Michael Gordon, and Dr. Gordon joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, doctor. Hello. Good to have you with us. Just want to read your introduction to begin this conversation about your book. You wrote in introducing your book to a friend in a sentence or two, you said this, This is a memoir about an ordinary young Jewish boy from Brooklyn who, following a six-month solo foray to Europe when he was 19 years old, had his life changed dramatically. The following decades took him to different countries, had him experience military service, brought him closer to his ancestral roots, 
and resulted finally in a career and leadership role in academic geriatric medicine education and medical ethics in Canada. Well, it sounds like a very, very packed full life. Well, I hope it was packed, Phil. I'm still around. <laughs> You're still around. So I, uh, I look forward to more of it. Well, tell us why you wrote this book. Well, those who know me know that I've always been a writer. I've been writing something or other oh, at least since high school. Uh, and certainly when I was in university, I went to Brooklyn College in Brooklyn. Um, one of my favorite uh, subjects was English. In fact, uh, when I told my uh, English 101 professor that I actually was a pre-med student, uh, she had this sad look on her face, and she said, I was sure you were an English major. What a shame. And I said, well, you know, you can be a doctor and a writer. And she looked at me and said, I don't think so. And I, and I would love to find her because um, I continue with my writing interest while I studied, but as I started traveling, and this was my first foray was something in those days was not very common for a 19-year-old to uh, go to Europe basically on his own. It, it certainly wasn't common. My parents were very progressive. Uh, and in my letters home, uh, and I have them because, of course, being good parents as they were, as they are, one is still alive, saved everything I ever wrote, when I read them, I realize, in a sense, it was the beginning of my journalism and writing because it reflected my experiences and observations. And I continued with this interest throughout my life and career. And depending on what I was doing, I translated it into different kinds of writing, some professional and some for the media, for the popular media, but the memoir was something I felt I had to do, which was somehow capture all the stories that I found interesting in my life and which helped formulate who I am. Now, you ask a few questions here. Uh, how the discovery of the roots of my name influenced by getting a prize in medical school that resulted in my going to Israel as a medical intern, which profoundly affected the rest of my life. So tell us about that. Well, my name is Gordon, and many people, including Jewish people, do not realize that Gordon is a Jewish name. It's not the typical Jewish name that most people associate with ending in S-K-Y or O-W-I-T-Z. The derivations of those names come from uh, what was going on in, in the 17th, 18th centuries in Europe, which ultimately you had to have an identifier as a last name rather than just the son of the father, which was the tradition, right? So if my father was Abraham, son of Abraham in Hebrew would be Ben Abraham, but when it became a Slavic name, Russian or Polish, it would become Abramovitz. So people know Abramovitz or Abramovich. Gordon didn't fit into that mode. So when I was about eight or nine years old, I asked my grandfather, what was our name before? assuming he was going to come up with Gordonowitz or something, and he said, our name has always been Gordon. And he said, my great-grandfather's name was Gordon, so as far as I know, it's always been Gordon. So although I was puzzled, I just stored it. And uh, I ended up going to medical school in Scotland, and part of that was so I could travel. And that was the outcome of my spending six months in Europe and realizing that life on the other side of the Atlantic was far more 
interesting and exciting than going to medical school anywhere in the United States. So I made my move. It was unusual at the time. I was a good student. I could have gone anywhere in the United States, but I chose, and I ended up going to medical school in Scotland. Now, in Scotland, everybody assumed I was Scottish with a name like Gordon. <laughs> and I would say, well, not really, but I didn't have an answer. And on a trip, it actually was my first trip to Israel as an exchange student, which, having studied in Britain, it was very common for Europeans to go from one country to another. Um, I actually picked up a history of Russia, written by a Scottish uh, history professor, and in it was a footnote describing a person whose name was Gordon and who was Jewish, where the name came from. And it actually came from a Scottish mercenary soldier, a general, General Patrick Gordon, who fought for Tsar Peter the Great. And in compensation for battles well fought and won, a number of things happened. He was given land, because those were the good old days of feudalism. He was given land on which were small villages in which Jews lived, which was very common, so-called shtetls. And he became a, a real favorite of the Tsar. So he actually visited Russia, what was then small Russia, which became bigger Russia. And when emancipation occurred in Russia, people had to take identifiers. Most took the name equivalent of the Slavic son of your father or daughter of your father, or the name of their trade or profession, or, as in the case of my ancestors, the name of the lord of the land, Gordon. So my ancestors took the name Gordon, that became our name. And people who know their history can usually get back to the point of knowing that the name has been around for a long time and that they came from Lithuania originally, rather than Russia. The ones who went to Russia were actually transplants, usually for family or economic reasons, went to Russia. Anyway, so I knew it was my name, and in Scotland when people said you must be Scottish, after I read this book, I'd say, well, sort of. And I would tell them the story. Anyway, when it came for me to sit my final exam in obstetrics and gynecology, it was not, I was a good student. I was a good medical student. But it was not my best subject. Everybody knew my interest was in internal medicine. But, you know, I knew I'd pass. I wasn't worried about passing. But in Scotland, which was pretty standard in Great Britain at the time, your final exam was a written exam and an oral called the Viva for living. And that was a 10-minute exam face-to-face -face with usually a senior staff person. As it were, my examiner was the professor of obstetrics and gynecology, a very imposing man, large in size and large in personality and humor. Anyway, I went into the exam, and he looked at me, and he said, I'm going to try to do my Scottish accent, okay? Hi, <laughs> you're the Yank. Oh, you must be Scottish with a name like Gordon. I said, well, not exactly. <laughs> but if you'd like to know how I got the name, I'll tell you the story. And he beamed at me and said, yes. So I looked at the clock. I was now at nine and a half minutes took 30 seconds for that little thing, and I wove my story, as I just told you, with the general, with the czar, with the name, with the back and forth, and meanwhile, the clock is going around. 
And at one minute to the end, he looks at his watch and says, Dear me. And he looks at me and says, Give me three, three causes, three symptoms of eclampsia, a pretty standard uh, obstetrical emergency, right? Of which I knew because, I mean, I was prepared for the exam. This was pretty standard question. And I looked at the clock as I, in a timely fashion, reeled off the three major symptoms. The hand crossed the hour. I was finished. And he looked at me, <laughs> face beaming, and said, very good, very good. And I saw him as I left the room write down a 10. Now, to get a 10 on the oral, for me, was unbelievable. Because it was not my best subject. If it were internal medicine, that would be what my class would have expected from me. Anyway, it turns out, with the 10 and whatever I did on my written exam, I ended up with a prize in obstetrics and gynecology. My classmates were astounded. Anyway, the prize was worth 500 pounds, which in those days was a lot of money. And I asked them if I could use the money to go anywhere. And they said, sure. So what I did is I returned to the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in Rambam Hospital in Haifa, where two years previously I had gone as a medical exchange for one month and fell in love with the country. But I had only been there for a month, and here was a chance to actually go and be an intern for half a year, or five months as it turned out, and have it all paid for, which meant from the point of view of the Israeli you know, hospital, they didn't have to give me any money. So when I wrote to them, this is before email and stuff, a real letter, they were delighted. Sure. So that $500 prize turned my life around. And also finding out, really, the mean of your name. Well, I, I kind of knew sort it, of the history, but the book gave me the details. And how did that make you feel? Well, it gave me that continuity of my historical presence. And I've used that over the years because when I meet Gordon, I ask them three questions. <laughs> are you first, are you Scottish Gordon or Jewish Gordon? You know, and everybody knows. If they say Scottish Gordon, I can have a conversation with them because I spent six years in Scotland. And I knew much about the Scottish Gordons and the three tartans because I've actually worn them, believe it or not. Uh, as a kilt, at least for fun, and, and for a, 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 a formal dance, which, you know, wearing a kilt is something one did. Um, if they say Jewish Gordon, I ask them, is it a real Gordon or is it a changed Gordon? Because many people, when they came, for example, to the United States, had their name changed when they came through Ellis Island to something that the immigration officer could pronounce. And Gordon was one of those names. So, Many people say Gordon, but they don't know where it came from or when, uh, and they can't trace it back. For those who know that it's always been Gordon, and they know something about the history, they can trace it back to at least Lithuania, if not to the actual villages. There were two villages where the name came from, the source. So I've used it over the years when I meet people who are Gordons, and I just was in Israel, and I met somebody in an office, when I mentioned, the office my wife went to, and I just accompanied her, when I mentioned to the woman that my name was Gordon, she lit up and said, oh, my cousin so-and-so is a Gordon. I have to speak to him and ask where he's from. I said, well, just find out if he's from Lithuania. And she said, well, he is. I know that. I said, well, this is the story, and she's going to get back to me to 
see if I have another connection uh, through her office. Dr. Gordon, you're a great storyteller, and there's so many things that we could talk about, but in the time we have remaining, give us an overview of your book. The, the essence of the book is how I got from this relatively humble beginning to end up in Canada as an academic geriatrician who was, at the end of the day, involved in the formation of geriatric medicine in this country. I didn't start off believing I was going to be a geriatrician when I was young and said, oh, you know, all my life. And the story, the odyssey, takes me through my training in Scotland and all my experiences there, my travels through Eastern Europe and Western Europe and my experiences, some of which were either profound or humorous or poignant. I dealt with issues related to anti-Semitism, which I experienced in Poland as a visiting student to having to learn foreign languages in order to get along, having to find work in a foreign country where I had no basis of finding work but succeeded in doing so, and then coming back to the United States at the time of the Vietnam War and making decisions about my place, and then moving to Canada, ending up marrying an Israeli woman who I had met just before the Six-Day War in Israel, Hearing the story of the Six-Day War from an Arab country, and for three days, even though I couldn't believe it, having to be believe in the possibility of the extinction of the country, because that's what was being said on Arab radio and Egyptian radio, which my sister who lived there in the Peace Corps could translate for me, and which was also broadcast in English. And then this unbelievable epiphany when I realized that it didn't happen, and the country was still existence, and that merely confirmed for me that that's the place I had to be. That's where my ultimate roots war were. And then there was a bit of a movement around, and then I finally went from Canada to Israel with then my wife, my Israeli wife, lived in Israel for four years, served in the Israeli Air Force, worked in an Arab village in Ramallah and helped start the first nursing school after the Six-Day War in the West Bank in Ramallah. And then finishing my training in Israel, being exposed to Israeli geriatrics, not that it was in my mind to be a geriatrician, but it twigged an interest that had started in Britain. And when I came to Canada, I ended up by accident falling into a position that included geriatrics. And as I started doing it, I realized this was my profession. And then working through that professional experience and becoming interested in the ethics of medicine end-of-life care, my first marriage broke up, I married again, and now have, with my second wife, two lovely children, as well as the two children from my first marriage, on good relationships with my first wife and her family, and I'm now in a position of leadership in Canada, and ultimately through that in the United States and internationally in geriatrics, and have the most wonderful career, but the main thing is I have all these stories and I accumulate stories because I love to tell them and write about them. And I thought that for those who might be interested, when it comes to choosing a career, you actually can do many things in one's life, even when you want to be a doctor and be creative and excited about all the aspects of it. Well, this book is called An Odyssey because your life has been an odyssey. <laughs> Very well spoken. We appreciate, Dr. Gordon, you being on iUniverse Radio. Tell us how to get your book. Well... It's 
mainly through online. Uh, it's available through the various online outlets in the United States. That's Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, obviously through iUniverse. In Canada, it's through Amazon CA and through Chapters Indigo. And I know that I have people who've bought the book through all those outlets. If you actually go into a Barnes & Noble store or into a chapter store, you can order it in the store. Some stores actually are stocking it, but I understand that very few at this point. But you can order it in the store, and it will be delivered to the store if you don't want to order it online. Nowadays, people order books online all the time. So it's readily available. Well, thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. My pleasure. That was Dr. Michael Gordon. He is the author of his book, Brooklyn Beginnings, A Geriatrician's Odyssey. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.